When I was uh, younger, I was constantly cartooning in school, constantly cartooning. My, my math books were like secondary you know, sketchbooks for my art portfolio. And uh, so unfortunately, as a result of all of the artwork I was doing and the cartooning, I didn't do very well in math, so I had to give up my dream of becoming a rocket scientist. And uh, so kids, if you're listening to your math homework, or you're, you're probably going to end up in the ministry, so uh, <laughs> word to the wise. But anyway, at any rate, when I was 10 years old, it was 1985, and I was greatly influenced by the artwork of a man named Bill Watterson. Bill Watterson was the creator of Calvin and Hobbes, the greatest comic strip of all time. And I was... <laughs> I got some amens in there this morning. And um, the thing is, I was so influenced by his art that I started using his, the construction lines for, um, you know, when you're going to render a, a drawing, you always start with construction lines. And I would always kind of use the construction lines for Calvin and based a lot of the characters I created as a little 10-year-old off of the construction lines of Calvin. I was just so, you know, influenced by him. The influences in our lives have a forming effect on our lives. This morning's text is from Philippians chapter 2. I'm going to read the first 11 verses where the Apostle Paul, he writes about the ultimate influence in his life, which had an ultimate formative effect on his life after he witnessed the resurrection of Jesus Christ and he received the forgiving grace of Christ, Paul's life was so changed in tangible ways uh, by the power of that grace that as a result, Jesus Christ became the single greatest influence, the single greatest formative power uh, in Paul's life. And then as a result of that, Paul then turns, which is where we pick up this text in Philippians, he turns to the church and he calls to the church to that same formative power. He calls the church to that, that same influence, uh, influencing power of the grace of Jesus Christ. He turns to them and he turns to us by extension and he calls us into this to be imitators of Jesus. Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you uh, look not only out for your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This is God's word. So as Paul's heart reflects and rejoices in the grace he was given by Jesus, his heart is animated, and it comes alive. 
and he desires to imitate Jesus. So Paul calls the church, and then he calls us, by extension, into this imitation. He calls us to rejoice in this grace of Jesus so that our hearts will be animated, and our hearts will come to life, and our hearts will desire that imitation of Jesus all by grace. This is today's sermon in a sentence. As we continually reflect and rejoice in the grace of Jesus, our hearts will be increasingly animated, desiring to imitate Jesus. See, imitation is the natural byproduct of, of a person, of a soul, that looks at something and says, I resonate with that. I, I like that. I want that. And for example, all the clothes that you're wearing this morning, the way that you all styled your hair, or shaved your heads, if you don't have any hair, or, you know, all of the manner of style that we're here this morning has been influenced upon us, unless you are a person who is, you know, 100% shut off from the outside media, and you spin, you have a little spin, spinning loom, what is that, in your basement, and you make your own clothing or something, and you have no external influences. We've all been influenced. All of us, in our own unique ways, looked on a particular thing and said, I like that, that resonates with me. I'm going to kind of adopt, incorporate that, imitate that. We all kind of did that. When we go to get our, our hair cut, sometimes we pull our phones out and we show a picture. We say, this is kind of what I'm looking at. This is kind of what I'm thinking. Can you do that? When they ask us, we're influenced. Imitation is the result of the soul that is resonate, resonating with something. And uh, so in a way, you know, that, that, that's where we, we, this imitation comes from. Now maybe you're new to Christian faith. Maybe you're new to church or you're exploring Christian faith and you're... And you're you have the idea, and it would be understandable to have this idea. You have this idea that the reason why you would obey God, or as I'm, I'm using the phrasing this morning, imitating God, desiring to be like Jesus, the, the religious idea is, well, you do that because then God accepts you. The more you're like Jesus, the more God accepts you. The less you're like Jesus, the less God accepts you. That's a religious idea. That's not actually the Bible. That's not scriptural. We don't imitate Jesus because by imitating Jesus, God accepts us. God accepts us by his grace in Christ. And it's from the amazement that we've been accepted, though we don't deserve it, that that produces in our hearts a desire for imitation. And that's how the flow of this text kind of unpacks, and I'll show it to you. So if you're new to the Bible or you're exploring Christian faith, it's important to understand that when I use the word gospel, really what I'm saying is God's grace coming toward you to save you in Jesus, you put your faith and trust in Jesus, though you don't deserve it, comes toward you, though you don't deserve it, and in Christ, God accepts you when you put your faith in Christ alone. And because of that acceptance, the life flows out of that. It's the opposite of the religious picture. So it's important to understand that. And this is how Paul does this text. Paul doesn't just start and say, hey, church, Jesus is awesome. You should probably be more like him. In fact... If you look at how he starts, the very first verse, he asks four rhetorical questions. He says, if there's any encouragement in Christ, right, if there's any comfort in his love, if there's any participation of the Spirit, if there's any affection, and when he's saying if there's any, if there's any, it's a rhetorical question. Sometimes you ask your children rhetorical questions. You already know the answer. You're not looking for information. Right? When you say to your kids, did you clean your room? You already know you didn't clean the room because you walked by and it looked like a bomb exploded 
and went off and, and like a, a clothing grenade in there. So you already know the answer. So when you say, did you clean your room? You already have the answer. When Paul says, is there any comfort in Christ? Is there, is there any um, participation in the Spirit? When he asks those rhetorical questions, he's not wondering about what God's grace will do in you. He's actually announcing what God's grace does in you. It's an announcement. This is how this whole thing begins. In fact, in the, in the construction in the, in the Greek, which I'm not going to really get into it, but you need to know, there's a tremendous emotional force to this text in terms of how it's supposed to be read. Tremendous emotional force. It's in the, the, way, the way that it is, he phrased it in the Greek, it's like Paul is saying, if water is wet and fire is hot and stones are hard and the sky is blue and stars are bright, then, right? Then, of course, we would want to imitate and live to the glory of our Savior. He's not asking questions. So when he says, is there any comfort in Christ? He's actually announcing, there's this great power of comfort in Christ coming toward you. Is there any participation in the Spirit? He's saying, there is this radical work of grace, participation of the Spirit, that comes with placing your faith in Christ alone, that you're now being called into, to imitate and to walk out into and to enjoy. So when he opens up in verse 1, he says, if there's any comfort, in the English, comfort is like soothing relief, right? And that's true as well. But the way Paul is using it here, it doesn't just mean soothing relief. There's a range of meaning in all languages. Those of you who speak other languages, you know, if somebody says, how do you say this in Spanish? Or how do you say this in German? Or how do you say this in, in this language? They'll say, well, and they'll kind of give you a sentence because they're like, well, it's not really a one-to-one translation. You could say it a bunch of ways. And when Paul says, is there any comfort in Christ? That word comfort that he uses in the Greek is parakaleo. And parakaleo means encouragement that creates strength. Encouragement that creates strength and offers bravery. When we think of comfort, we don't think of strength and bravery. But what Paul is saying is, is there any comfort in Christ? And he's not, he's not even really asking. It's a rhetorical question. He's going, there is comfort in Christ. There is a strengthening power of encouragement and bravery coming toward you. Why would, he, when he's getting to, why, does, why doesn't he just say, hey guys, be nice to each other and be more like Jesus? Why does he start with, there is this work of the Spirit, there's a parakaleo in Christ, there is this comfort and bravery and strength. Why? Why would he say that? What do you need strength and bravery for? To love others. It takes strength and bravery to love. It takes strength and bravery to live outward facing. Because the most natural thing for us to do is to live inward facing. The most natural thing for this community to do would be curved inward on itself. I'm good, you're good, we're good. But it takes strength and bravery to look outside of ourselves. Love by its very definition means it has an object and the object isn't you. So if you're loving somebody, that means all of your energy is directed toward them. That takes a strength and a bravery. Why? Because it's not comfortable to live this others, uh, others uh, centered, others facing uh, lifestyle. It takes that bravery. Paul is saying the love of God toward you and the grace of God for you is offering strength and bravery to you so that you can love others, which is where the text t- takes us, right? Because being self-absorbed is natural, um, but love takes this strength, takes this bravery. And so that's why he goes on to the church and he says, as the text plays out, he says, don't be conceited. Don't live from conceit. Don't live from selfish ambition. 
right? This isn't just this, it's not just an arbitrary to-do list. Hey, here's what Christians do. They're not conceited, they live other-centered, they love, they love other people. He doesn't just say, hey, now that you're a Christian, this is what it looks like. He starts the whole thing by going, something happened in you. Something happened in you by grace. The grace of God for you that took all of your sin away, though you don't deserve it. That you stand before God justified, innocent. God looks on you and he says, you're innocent. That does something. That creates a strength and a bravery. That, that curves us outward. And so he says, don't live with this over, overemphasized you know, uh, uh, sense of self-importance, which is what conceit is. And then he specifically says, put the interests of others above yourselves. And again, it's, it's so simple, it's almost embarrassing. Why would he take the time to even write this down? Hey, think about other people. Be kind. Right? You're like, D- does he need to really write this? He does really need to write it. Because the natural disposition of our hearts is to curve in and into me-first mode. And, um, and so, of course, this is where this goes. Now, this outward-facing posture of generosity and sacrifice, this is a lifestyle that we're called to do. We, may, we have moments when we are. You and I have moments when we're generous and sacrificial. But we also have many moments when we're the exact opposite of those things. And so God's grace is doing something in us so that more and more, this actually describes us. You may look in the mirror and say, I don't know that somebody would describe me as a a strong and brave person who's not thinking about themselves, brave because they're thinking about others, loving because they're thinking about others. You may look in the mirror and say, I don't know that that really describes me. I think I'm pretty much kind of wrapped into what I'm up to most of the time. Well, the good news of God's grace is there is a participation in the Spirit, which is where Paul began, that is undoing that and creating something new that we are now invited to participate in by the power of his grace. And so Paul isn't instructing us to self-generate any of this with our willpower. This whole thing is an encouragement that this is being done in you, church, through the, by the Spirit's power. And so then when you get to verse 5, there's this very familiar um, phrase for those of you who've been in church, those of you who are new to church, this will be a new phrase, to hear this phrase, the mind of Christ. So if, if that's new for you, that may, might strike your ear in a weird way. What does that even mean, to have the mind of Christ? Those of us that have been in church for a while, we've heard it, but we've also probably thought to ourselves, what does that even mean, to have the mind of Christ? I remember being a little kid and being told, you have the mind of Christ. And I used to think, well, that's odd, because I think a lot of horrible things. So does Jesus have a horrible mind? Because my mind seems to be horrible. Um, so if I have the mind of Christ, why am I thinking these thoughts that seem to be nothing like Christ? And then I, it was compounded because later I was a part of a church that used to um, talk about the mind of Christ like this. They'd be like, you know, you can do it. You've got the mind of Christ. Right? Oh, you're not good at math, Paul. Don't say that about yourself. You've got the mind of Christ. You can, you can succeed in this area. You've got the mind of Christ. You're a business person, a man or a woman trying to advance your career. If anybody in the office is going to have a God idea... You know, it's going to be you because you've got the mind of Christ. So you're going to be able to succeed because you have the mind of Christ. And it was always framed in a way of kind of succeeding at something because the mind was Christ's mind, which is not what Paul's talking about, you know, at all here. If the mind of Christ meant, you know, monetary success and whatever, then Ted Turner and Mark Zuckerberg have the mind of Christ then because they've, they've really knocked the lights out with ingenuity and entrepreneurship and financial, you know, acclaim. So that's not what it's talking about at all. And... Um, what it's talking about here in the context of, of uh, this, the verses here is he says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Let it be in you. So to, the, to, the, to those of us who say, well, if I have the mind of Christ, then why do I struggle so much with things that don't seem anything like Christ? There's this encouragement. Paul is saying, let it be in you. He's inviting us into it. 
It's something that by the power, it's something that by the Spirit, you know, is ours and is accessible, but it's something that we're invited to enter into. So what does it mean uh, to, to have the mind of Christ? Well, it's certainly not intellect. It's talking about reframing our attitudes. It's talking about this outward-facing love. Because after Paul says, you have the mind of Christ, let this mind be in you, he goes on and talks about what Jesus did. He says, Jesus was equal with the Father, but yet he humbled himself. He didn't, he didn't count his equality with God because he was God as something to just cling to, so he let it go. Jesus doesn't cling to stuff. Jesus lets it go to love others. <laughs> we love to cling to stuff and not let things go so that we don't have to love others. We love to cling to security. Jesus goes, Jesus, that's what, there's what Paul goes, hey, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. You have the mind of Christ. Well, what does that even mean? Jesus, who was equal with the Father, says, I can let all this go to love you. That's why we need strength and bravery, because who's up for that? It's hard. You see, on paper, we like things. Let's be a missional church. We're going to be gospel-centered. We're going to preach the gospel in this city. But when you get it on the ground, though, it's you and I living outward-facing lives and loving and caring for people. It's, but, 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 of course, I mean, maybe I'll back it up. Because before I even talk about the city, I got to, Paul's context is right here in this room. One of the challenges of church, this church and every church, is that we are naturally curved inward people. And so we, so we come in here, and it's very difficult to, to curve ourselves out to care and love and for one another. And so we're willing to do that, in, or it's easier to do it in uh, mechanical kind of ways. In other words, a need comes up, we present the need, you raise your hand and say, I'll help out with the need. Right? And that is a good and a beautiful thing. But what Paul's getting at here is underneath that, it takes the strength and bravery to live this outward-facing life to be like, I care about you, how are you doing? and caring and loving in community. See, the Philippians weren't in unity. That's why he's writing this. The Philippian church wasn't loving and caring for one another. That's why he's writing this. That's why we have this instruction, because they, they were all kind of like these little kind of nuclear units that kind of gathered together. And Paul's like, hey, you've got to be able to love one another, care for one another, but that's going to take some strength. That's going to take the work of the Spirit, because your natural inclinations could be, hey, how are you? I'm good. Are you blessed? I'm blessed too. Good, we're both blessed. We agree we're both blessed. Have a nice day. See you next Sunday. Right? Like, that's most church for most of us, right? That's mostly what it is. Because for me to get out of myself and be like, how are you doing? How's your family? Because what if they say something that's, you know, sorrowful? Can we sit in that sorrow and love those people and say, oh my goodness. Or we're like, you know what? I got enough drama <laughs> in my life. I got enough drama in my family, so I'm not going to do this. So you see, the gospel of Jesus Christ and his grace is precisely why Paul starts there. And he doesn't just go, hey, P.S., be nice. He says, if there's any work of the Spirit, if there's any comfort in this work of grace, the rescuing grace has this reforming trajectory. And so he says this um, to us, and he gives this to us. And so you've got these, these hearts that are being worked out of their inevitable, you know, me-first position. Those of you kids who are in here may remember being on the playground or something. Like, okay, guys, we're going to play a game. Everybody line up. And then when they line up, there's like the massive fight, you know, of the first six kids in the front. The rest of the line, they know they're not first, so they just accept it. And they stand there. But the first, kid, first six kids are all battling and jockeying for position. Me first, me first, me first. 
And then those kids grow up to be adults who are on the highway and when we're all merging and we're all there, they just keep zooming by us in that one lane, me first, me first, me, my life is more important than all of yours, you know, and they move over and then some of us who are still trying to work out our sanctification drive in the middle. I'm that guy, I always do that. I do it. I drive in the middle. I'm like, I'm like, oh, they go, I'm like, if one more person, if one more, oh, that's it, one more person, I'm like, I'm driving in the middle, I just go in the middle. People start pulling up behind me. I'm like, hey, I just look right at them. You know, and like when you're when you're in when you're in a car, you feel like you're in a bubble and nobody can see you. But you know, those windows are made of glass and we can see each other. So I like I'll look right over at them. It's terrible. I I need the Lord to do a lot of work in my life. But anyway, you know, me first, me first. We even have friends that are like that. The orientation of the me first. Paul says it takes the grace of Christ. Think about it. Think about it. Apart from, apart from the resurrection of Jesus Christ, our Lord, and him infusing his Holy Spirit into us to do a renewing work, we're just going to keep defaulting to this position of, of me first. Um, you, know, you know, hey, can we get together? Yeah, sure. I have next Thursday at, at uh, 226. Okay, great. Well, 226 doesn't work with me, but, two, but, but 227 works. No, sorry, I can't make it. Well, but could we, could we, no, I, I just really, I'm about self-care. Like, I just need to care for myself. It's, I spread myself too thin. No, your problem is not self-care. Like, that, that, your problem is not that you don't care for yourself enough. If, if you're baptizing rigidity as self-care, see, this is what we all fall into. This is the culture that we live in. This is, these are the waters that we're swimming in. So Paul is pulling us out of this and saying, hey, Jesus Christ has done a wondrous thing, an amazing thing. So when he says, let this mind be in you, he knows, of course, that the Philippian church is not automatically walking out the loving, sacrificial perspective of Christ. You and I are not automatically walking this out. We're actually instructed here, when he says, let the mind be in you, he's, we're being instructed to be firstly awed by it, enter into it, and imitating it. And imitate it. Paul is saying the Christian faith is a lifelong process of essentially imitating what we celebrate. So where does this all begin and how do we do it? We don't leave here and pull our, simply pull the boots up and try harder. We have to, there has to be celebration. It's the celebration of his grace that motivates our imitation, our desire to, to, uh, to, to walk out his life. So when you come to verses 6 to 11, it's the very center of the letter. This is the portion where it says... Jesus was equal with the Father, but he emptied himself of his, de- uh, of his deity. And then it says that he has the, been given the name that is above every name, that one day every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That right there is the center of the whole letter. Um, theologians call it the Christ hymn. Those of you kids who are in here, if you've ever, well, you've probably never done this. I don't know, this is going to be ridiculous, but I'll say it anyways. If you've ever made a, a science project solar system, and do they even do that anymore? You're probably rendering these things on laptops and iPods, but when I was in school, you were grabbing foam things on coat hangers and trying to have them rotate around, you know, the solar system. Has anybody ever done that? Okay, I'm just curious on how badly this analogy has missed. Raise your hand if you, if you ever did that. Let's see. Four. Six. Six. Six people. That was a lousy sermon illustration if I've ever seen one. Well, anyways, conceptually, conceptually understand that everything revolves around the sun. You've probably seen some sort of a gif of this. Okay, so um, everything is revolving around the sun. And this whole letter is revolving around those verses. The Christ hymn. The way to think about all of the instructions in Philippians, because as we keep moving through this letter, Paul's going to keep giving the church instruction. 
But it's all rotating and revolving around this radical grace of Christ. That he was in the form of God. Verses 6 to 8, it says he was in the form of God, but he emptied himself. All of the other competing gods in the ancient religion did not empty themselves. They were like, I'm strong, you're weak, you be strong, and maybe I'll accept you. But our strong God came and became weak. He emptied himself. That's why the text says he didn't consider his equality with God something to be grasped, something to cling to. He, he, he laid it down, contrary to the religious ideas about God. This is what, this is what uh, he did. He's a God that is like no other. What Jesus was willing to do, it was staggering and it was humiliating. The God who spun the universe into motion, the God whose voice is holding the world together with a word of his power, he was willing to condescend himself and be the voice that cried in a manger and be the voice that cried out on the Roman cross and was crucified like a, like a criminal and it was embarrassing. He was willing to do that. Those were the lengths that he went to. And so this picture of emptying himself and, of, and of, of sacrifice, this is what he was willing to, to do. And when it says he was in the form of God, it doesn't simply mean Jesus was a shapeshifter. Jesus was, first, he was in the, first he was in the form of God, and then he took a different shape and he was in the form of man. Form in the Greek means that it is, what, it, what it's conveying here is he is uh, personifying uh, he is absolutely pers- per- personifying the, um, the nature. He is personifying everything of who God is. And so when we, look, when we wonder about God, God is so abstract, and what does that really mean, and God is out there. But Jesus is very concrete. He's not abstract. You can look at his life. You can read the Gospels. You can see what he did. You can see what he said. And what Philippians is saying is everything about Jesus tells you who God is perfectly, 100%. A lot of people have hang-ups about the Old Testament because these old texts are trying to figure out how this works and what is happening. And they attribute all of these terrible things that man did to like, yeah, the God is this crazy God of the Old Testament. But that's, not, that's, that's, that's inaccurate. Jesus Christ isn't like some you know, good guy who's saving us from an angry bad guy in the Old Testament. Jesus is God. So everything about Jesus is showing us that he, of who God is. So when we are looking at God, we're seeing uh, how he feels about us. That's why I say often when we're looking at the cross, we're seeing how he's feeling about us because he's showing us, he's showing that to us. Have you ever got a text and you look down at it and it's like, hey, can we meet or can we talk? And you see who it's from and your reaction is, no! Hey, can, hey we need to talk. No! Oh! Probably only me. But imagine, that, imagine if that ever happened to you. Can we meet? Now I want to flip it and you're that person. You're the one sending the text. Oh man, can we meet? Can we get together? And you know that feeling when you see dot, dot, dot. What are they going to say? And then the text comes. You got it. On my way. Where do you want to meet for coffee? The relief that comes when you need someone and they're I'm there. You see, this Christ hymn is at the center because every time that we call out, we fall a thousand times to God. Jesus Christ, who was equal with the Father, but didn't consider that something that he needed to grip onto. So he laid it all down for you. And you and I now call out to him and we cry out to God, oh God, I need you. And his response is never, oh, his response is always, I'm here. 
And it's from the radicality of that grace, it's from the radicality of that forgiveness that Paul's circuits were blown, and this is now the most formative thing in his life. And he's like, I'm so free and liberated by this, I want to imitate that kind of love and grace. I want to live that way for the church. I want to share the gospel and live and care for others. I want to live this outward-facing life. It's all stemming from the grace of Jesus Christ. And so that's why he goes on to say Jesus' life wasn't, didn't end in that death and humiliation. He actually says that Jesus Christ was highly exalted. So Paul knows something. Jesus' suffering ends in exaltation. Where is Paul writing this letter from? A Roman prison, 61 AD, under Nero. Things are getting hot. It's not a good situation. He's suffering. Paul is seeing a pattern. He's like, wait a minute. Christ's suffering ended in exaltation. I'm suffering for Christ. Where is my suffering going to go? It's going to end well. It's going to end in exaltation. Jesus was free enough to give his life away because he knew that in the end his life was eternal. I'm free enough to give my life away because in the end my life is eternal. Hey, Philippi! If the gospel is true, then our life is eternal. If Christ lived the perfect life, we could never live. We should live it, but we're not living it. If he lived that for us, forgives all of our sin, dies an atoning death, rises on the third day, and ascends to the Father, if that's true, then that means our life is eternal. That infuses into our heart. The radicality of that grace now begins to do a work, which is where this whole text began, participation in the Spirit. If there's any comfort in Christ and participation in the Spirit, then, therefore, if that's true, I'm now empowered to give my life away. Because this is life isn't all that there is. And so I'm now I'm free, and I'm liberated because of the goodness of the gospel, because of the implications of the gospel. I'm free to love others. I'm free to put their interests above my own, like the text says. I'm free to suffer for the message of the gospel if sharing it brings some sort of a suffering in my life. I'm free. If Christ was exalted and we're united to him by grace and faith, then that means we're going to be exalted. And so then when Paul closes, he says that this is the name that's above every name. Every knee is going to bow. Every tongue's going to confess that Jesus is Lord. And so if Jesus is the one who gave his life for us and his Lord over us, and he's got the name that's above every name, then that means that he's the judge. If his grace was not good and real and true, that would be terrifying. This text would be terrifying. We would, read, we would be reading, he's got the name above every name, every knee's going to bow, every tongue's going to confess, and one day when we all die, because we're all made of dirt, and that's our trajectory, we're going to stand before the divine judge. That would be terrifying. If the message of the Bible was live a good life and make sure that you're putting interests of others in front of yourselves and make sure you're loving and hey, church community, make sure you care for each other because if you don't, one day, I mean, the text says it, we're going to be in front of the judge. This would be terrifying. But it's not terrifying because of where this whole thing began. When Paul says, name above every name, every knee is going to bow, every tongue is going to confess because he's Lord. He's the judge. Our judge justified us. Our judge is the justifier. If you're new to church, this might be helpful for you. See, as Christians, we live our lives not wondering what the verdict will be. It's a religious idea to be like, hey, live a good life, and if you live it good enough, then at the end you'll get a good verdict, and the verdict will be, you know, good job, enter into paradise. Like, that's a religious idea. Christians, we're not, wondering what the ver- we're not wondering what the verdict is on the basis of our life. We know what the verdict is based on Christ's life. We already know. 
So Paul says every knee is going to bow, every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But hey, that's good news for us because our judges are justifier. We already have our verdict and it's not guilty. And so from the basis of the verdict that's not guilty, from the basis of the one that's, that's covered us in grace, he calls us to celebrate the grace and therefore be formed to live to the imitation of that grace. And so the gospel is this great announcement. We have our verdict. Because at the cross, Jesus Christ said, it is finished. And he meant it. As we continue to reflect and rejoice in the grace of Jesus Christ, our hearts will be increasingly animated to desire to imitate Jesus Christ. May God do that great work in us, church. Let's pray.